This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. All right. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Fantasy. I am your host, A.E. Lanier, and my guest today is author L.R. Lamb, author of Dragonfall, an epic fantasy novel following Evren, a dragon who manages to make it back to the human world centuries after his people were banished, and Arcady, the human thief he finds himself bonded to. This is the first novel in Lamb's Dragon Skills trilogy, and they are joining us today from Edinburgh. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. It's lovely to have you. To start us off, can you just tell us a little bit about Dragonfall, who Everin and Arcadia are, and their story? Yeah. So uh, Dragonfall was basically uh, me very stuck in lockdown and just wanting to smush all of my favorite things together to basically get through lockdown. Uh, And so I decided to create kind of an homage to like 90s fantasy in some respects, like the ones I read growing up uh, and loved, uh, but give them a bit of a modern twist. So uh, Dragonfall stars, yes, Evren, who is the last male dragon, and he's been foretold to um, you know, bring about the glory days uh, for dragons and save them and bring them back to the human world. Because uh, about 800 years ago, humans and dragons used to be bonded in that beautiful symbiotic human writer relationship you see in so many fantasy novels. Uh, but humans being humans decided to uh, get jealous and steal a bunch of dragons' magic and banish them to this dying world. Um, but humans have shorter lives than dragons and shorter memories. And so they don't remember what they've done and they worship dragons as gods. And my little tagline is that the dragon gods remember and they do not forgive. Uh, And then we have Arcady, who is a human who has been pretty much locked out of society. So they are, you find this out in the first chapter, so it's not a spoiler or second chapter, but they are the grandchild of uh, the man known as the plague bringer. You can probably guess what he may or may not have brought or done. Uh, And, you know, almost brought about the end of the world. And so Arcady doesn't believe that they did it and is trying to steal enough money to go to university 
to be able to try and find out the truth uh, at the Citadel and, you know, clear their family's name, essentially. All right. Thank you. Uh, you talked a little bit already about um, this being sort of like a love letter or an homage to 90s fantasy. And obviously, dragons are of central import. So can you talk a little bit about dragons generally, sort of things you wanted to lean into or not lean into? Obviously, it's a huge staple of the genre. Yeah, and dragons are really having a moment. Like the I released in May and there were three dragon books um, that month. Unfortunately, I have not matched the sales of Fourth Wing, more's the pity, but you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like growing up, if there was a dragon on the cover, I would bring it home from the library or the bookstore. Like they are the ultimate fantasy creature, I think. And they just go back to so much ancient myth and legend that has led into fantasy as a genre as well. Um, and I think they're just really fascinating creatures. But a lot of the time they were like, you know, the monster to be slain or something fundamentally unknown knowable or kind of too far above humans knowledge almost so I was really interested to just get really personal with dragons and actually write from the point of view of a dragon which I don't I can't think of many other fantasy books that actually do that um, which I didn't quite realize uh, I had done and yeah it was really fun to just put right from the point of view of a dragon who can turn into a human form and what they would think about human society and how they would view things and yeah, that sort of thing. So I just wanted to really revel in the dragonness of the world, I guess. <laughs> Obviously, Everin and Arcady come from like very different cultures, in part because they are straight up different species. Um, and Arcady like basically doesn't know that Everin's culture still exists or anything about that it he's a dragon. <laughs> yeah, or this is a dragon i mean one of those central things so really all of that context is missing um but there's sort of huge differences in terms of everything from their relationship to magic to gender to like power and hierarchy and i was wondering if you could talk about some of sort of those cultural differences and which ones were like really important to you in thinking about their relationship yeah yeah. So I kind of realized partway through drafting that I'd basically taken a paranormal shifter romance and put it into epic fantasy, which is really funny. Um, but yeah, they have very different attitudes to so many things, which was what made them so fascinating to write. So for example, in the human world, magic is kind of funneled through these stone seals that everyone wears around their their neck either as a necklace or sometimes even actually like embedded against their skin with some kind of creepy metal seal settings that they um, put in with magic. And um, it's quite regimented. So you kind of are born with a closer affinity to one of the five dragon gods, like larger types of magic, um, which were things like, you know, water, but also shape-shifting. Kind of every god had maybe like two main bits of magic. So you've got uh, water and shape-shifting, you've got fire and alchemy, you've got stone and metal and like telekinesis, weather magic, and the forbidden magic of mind reading, which no one's allowed to do anymore and you're not allowed to teach it, and um, earth magic and healing. And you can learn more with study 
Um, and you also have to fuel your magic with energy because, you know, you always have to have a cost for magic. Brandon Sanderson has taught us this. And uh, I thought it was interesting. A lot of the time you'd see people would get really tired after using magic. But, you know, I was thinking more in terms of like athletes, you need to eat a lot of food to be at peak performance. And then that also ties into can you access enough food to do magic? And what happens if you do too much magic and you haven't properly fueled yourself? Um, and in my world, the answer is you turn into a zombie vampire hybrid and might eat people. So cannibalism is, is the cost potentially, uh, which is not ideal. Meanwhile, yeah, meanwhile, over in the dragon world, they're a lot more kind of in tune with magic. Like it's really embedded within every scale of their body, uh, every part of their body, and they don't need to be quite as regimented with it. It's more innate. It's not as delineated. It's easier for them to use different kinds of magic. Um, so I found that really fun to play with. And then I also had, yeah, different approaches to gender in this as well. So in Locke and Locke Maria, they used to be the the same country and then they bisected into two. Um, it's a very kind of fluid society in terms of gender because, you know, if a certain percentage of everyone can shapeshift or you can change a lot of things through magical healing, you wouldn't necessarily see biology as this innate unchanging thing, I figured. Um, and if you're able to do things like, you know, lessen infant mortality, then maybe that would also feed into not having as intense like gender roles related to like reproduction and that sort of thing. And so in Locke, it's considered rude to assume a stranger's gender. Um, so you default to they, them. And as you get to know them, they will tell you what their gender is very easily by just kind of flashing their uh, pronoun with sign language, which is also quite embedded in society. But meanwhile, over in the dragon world, <laughs> I came up with a scientific reason why 99.9% .9 of all dragons are lesbians. <laughs> and, and the answer uh, I got what I was inspired by whiptail lizards, who are, uh, or they are a type of lizard in, I think, New Mexico specifically, where this specific subspecies are all genetically female, um, but they clone themselves through parthenogenesis for reproduction. Um, but they still get it on with each other to prepare to clone themselves, which I thought was great. So good job, lesbian lizards. Um, so yeah, so because the dragons have been banished to a world that's getting warmer, the eggs are hatching female because the outside temperature can affect the sex that lizards can hatch as as well in certain species. Um, but then for some unknown reason, Evren crawled out of his shell being a man and he's the first uh, male dragon in 300 years. And the last one was also a prophet and went mad and burned a bunch of the prophecies. So everyone both like revers Evren, but is also a little bit afraid of what he represents. That was a long answer, but... <laughs> I mean, it's a very complicated topic, so it makes sense. I think that's really fun. Everyone definitely gets to do a lot of the, like, fish out of water encountering both a culture and a species for the first time. And that's one of my favorite tropes is, like, encountering humans as this, like, weird thing that no one's yeah, ever Yeah, he tries seen. so hard to pretend to be human in the first part of the book. And he, bless him, he's not very good at it. Yeah. It's just some quality, like, weird alien POV attempting to try and figure out what human yeah, is. I had a lot of fun writing those chapters and just, like, every time I'd edit a certain scene, I would just, like, giggle to myself because I was like, hee hee hee. 
he's drunk and doesn't realize it yet. Ha ha ha. Someday he will know, but not yeah. yet. Uh, so you touched on this a little bit already, but we sort of have kind of two big um, problems looming, both in terms of like plague and then essentially climate catastrophe as these things that go throughout the novel and that perhaps might be relevant to some of us hmm. in our own lives. Perhaps. Um, so I was just wondering. I this idea. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like super unique and I've never heard of it before. Um, but I was wondering sort of what working with those themes was like and how they kind of influenced the writing process or your story yeah. overall. So I actually got the whole plague storyline kind of background long before COVID because I actually came up with this book idea in like 2018 but I had to write another book first so it was just kind of percolating in the background um, but I was inspired more by like the bubonic plague and how you would have these you know spikes kind of coming through the century as soon as everyone thought they were safe would have it come up again um, and then yeah then I ended up writing it in lockdown so that inevitably kind of fed into things whether I wanted it to or not. Um, and then in terms of climate catastrophe, I thought it was just really interesting to think of like these are two different worlds that are clearly linked in ways that will be revealed throughout the series, but they're out of balance. So in Verisalen, things are getting too hot and therefore the prey is getting scarcer and there's a lot of, you know, danger that, you know, is very analogous to climate change, but you also have it in the human world as well. So I was really inspired by like algal blooms, which you get a lot of as well, um, partially too, because they can be bioluminescent at night. So I could make it look visually cool as well at certain points. Um, so yeah, so yeah, pretty much I was inspired by nature being out of balance and seeing how that would kind of feed into my magic systems and all the various thematics that I was weaving together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the interesting things about plague, too, in the novel is the way that plague is like sort of shaping society, which, of course, obviously happens. But we tend to be pretty uncomfortable talking about plague. And so we often sort of forget that. So there's a lot of ways in which um, you have sort of like marginalized communities that have been impacted by disease. And also it's sort of impacted the economics because you have less humans that are alive to do work. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to those changes as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was also partially inspired by lepers and how they were treated in medieval society as well. Like they had to wear a little bell around their wrist or something like that to kind of announce their presence. And they were locked out of society or sent off to leper colonies. And so the survivors of this magical plague that kind of jumped from seal to seal, it was called the strike. Um, and the survivors were creatively called the struck. Um, and they have a very visual... Um, way of mark like they are marked by these dark you know kind of veins um, across their face or it depends some are very lightly marked if they survived and some are very heavily marked but they are very clearly outsiders as a result and there's a belief that if you are a survivor of the strike that your magic is just inherently corrupted which may or may not be true it's probably like you're more likely to turn starveling um, you'd probably burn through your reserves faster but that doesn't mean you can't still use magic necessarily but society is too afraid to take that risk so if you are a survivor of the plague your seal is meant to be confiscated and replaced with marble so you're not able to use any magic at all um, and so if a character uh, who I won't name because it would be a spoiler uh, was a survivor then they might do quite a lot of things 
to prevent that from happening. Well, and I think seals are so interesting overall because they're a pretty universal thing. Everyone within this culture essentially has one, but it allows kind of a level of almost surveillance or identity in a pre-industrial world that you usually wouldn't have. And I thought that was so interesting. And as someone that obviously writes both fantasy and science fiction, it felt sort of like a blending there. Could you speak a little bit more about seals and the impacts that they have? Can you tell I wrote two cyberpunk books in the past? (laughs) Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in surveillance states and because I was trying to think like, okay, if, if Locke is such a society that's obsessed with like class delineation, then why would they let most people have even access to the smallest amount of magic? Even if most people still don't have enough food to do lots of magic, um, you'd maybe get more food if you had a a job where you were expected to do magic to help rebuild after the strike. Uh, but it also means that, yes, if someone, say, committed a murder via a spell, you'd be able to trace it back easily. If someone was a criminal and made a run for it, you could do a tracking spell really easily because all of these seals are um, engraved with signs of your identity that's kept, yeah, in a giant library up in the Citadel. Uh, and so that's a problem for Arcady because if anyone was to read their seal, they would see that the last name is Aramea, which is the name of the plague bringer, so they can't use it. And you're not meant to ever be able to get rid of your seal or erase it or change it. But again, the plague bringer was also very experimental with magic and evidently found a spell to do it. And so Arcady decides to use that spell and steal their own grandfather's seal um, from their tomb in the second chapter, which was pretty grim. Uh, but the spell does have, yeah, that un- unintended side effect of drawing through an incredibly attractive stranger <laughs> that they are now half bonded to. Problematic, yeah, or is it? it? Yeah. yeah. It's not so inconvenient when you end up with like a hot magical stranger that is tied to you. Yeah. So if one person is injured, the wound shows up on the other person. Uh, So they kind of have to keep each other around because Arcady's like, well, if you go off and get yourself killed, I'm killed. And that's, you know, not going to happen. So I guess I will hang out with you, hot dragon, and we'll see what we can do together. (laughs) Their relationship is so interesting um, because, again, it's playing with a lot of these super fun tropes and spaces to be where they both have to be together, are obviously very attracted to each other, and also um, have a lot of secrets and baggage that they have to like bring into this whole thing, which again, very fun, very juicy. Could you talk a little bit about sort of like what that line is around like consent and liking each other while also having these like deep, dark secrets and lying about basically everything. Yeah, it was a real challenge because it is sort of enemies to lovers, but not like to the point where they're like proper, proper enemies really for a lot of it. Um, But yeah, they technically, neither of them consented to this bond really, which is I think the important part. I think if I'd had it that Evren very deliberately set out to maliciously loop Arcady into this, I think that would be a lot more like 
problematic and difficult to handle, but it is sort of something neither of them expected or went into willingly. So they kind of both have to navigate their boundaries together. Um, and because Everin technically is physically so much stronger and arguably has more magic and things, I wanted to even the playing field. So I have it that if Arcady physically touches Everin, um, Arcady kind of accidentally steals some of his magic and it also physically causes him pain. Um, and that puts uh, Everin very much on the back foot. Um, and I also did not realize until quite late on that it also became accidentally kinky, but that's another that's another side effect. And then I decided just to lean into that a bit, I guess. Um, but I found it really interesting to do this kind of forced proximity trope and this sort of like, it is a quote unquote soulmate bond, but they again have to consent to it. Like they can't finish the bond until they both actively trust each other. So again, they both have to make that choice, which I found really fun. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, yeah. And destiny and fate are obviously like kind of shaping the way that their relationship is happening, but they're also really important parts overall. You sort of touched on prophecy as being this thing that is really important for Evren already, but I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to sort of the role of prophecy and fate in the novel. Yeah, so I was really interested in like, you know, the chosen one trope and the Dark Lord and, you know, all these kind of mainstays of fantasy, but I wanted to kind of really interrogate them and hopefully a, a different way that we haven't seen that much before. And I'm, I'm always quite interested in that like, discussion of free will versus destiny. And like, a lot of prophecies in fantasy novels are delightfully vague as well. So you can sort of like squeeze them into whatever configuration you want. Um, and Everin's kind of aware of this because he's been trying to scry and have these visions and prophecies, but he hasn't been having them. But, you know, these archivists are pouring through all these old kind of, you know, scattered prophecies and being like, well, this line clearly relates to this. And he's like, but does it though? Or is it just a nice bit of poetry <laughs> that we have decided vaguely fits what we want to happen? Um, so he both really wants this like access to fate and future and divinity and that sort of thing, but also resents it and mistrusts it, which I thought was quite fun to play with. And Arcady, meanwhile, doesn't really know that all this prophecy stuff is even happening. And, you know, quite early on is like, well, I don't believe in luck necessarily. Like you have to make your own fate. And everyone's just like, with the what now? Um, so I thought having that kind of them having very diametrically opposed ideas to what the future should be or whether the future is written for them um, was quite interesting to play with as well. And there's some twists that happen along the way um, that will that upset Efren as well in terms of what it means for fate and his destiny. In addition to having sort of different relationships with fate and prophecy, Arcadia and Everin also have sort of different relationships with um, a sense of family and responsibility and almost legacy. Both of them have really sort of impactful relationships with legacy, but in 
wildly different ways. Baggage. <laughs> yes, that that's the word. They yeah, do there yeah. is a lot of baggage around them that in some ways is very similar and is very different. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about their baggage. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Everin is a dragon prince basically. You know, he's been raised with, you know, all that all the privilege you could have in a dying world, essentially. Everyone sort of revered him, but he also felt this intense pressure to perform. And when, you know, he kept trying to scry and he wasn't able to provide this magical answer as to how to save his people, his people, he just grows increasingly desperate, which is why he decides to break into the archives and actually look at the prophecies himself to see if he can make sense of it. Um, but they had been not letting him do that because the last male dragon had read all the prophecies and gone mad and burned the library. So so they were like, maybe not that again. Maybe we've learned from our, our past. But he does find one and he follows it. And that's what leads him to the human world. So he thinks, okay, well, maybe I'm on my right path. Maybe I'll know what to do. When he's in the human world, he starts getting these dreams that seem like they're visions that might lead him to. So he's very much like wanting to believe and wanting to do what he's been raised to do and wanting to prove that he's not a failure of a prophet. And then, yeah, Arcadia on the other side, you know, her or their family historically was not super wealthy or high status. It was the grandfather who kind of raised himself up to be an advisor uh, at the Citadel and, you know, be really uh, innovative with magic and that sort of thing. Uh, but that meant that they were, e he was easy to be a scapegoat perhaps, um, or so Arcady believes. And so Arcady very much has this chip on their shoulder because they were raised relatively privileged, then lost everything, lost even more. Uh, parents died um, and kind of slunk back into Vatra, not able to access society at all. And so becomes a thief, runs in with a group of thieves, the Merricks, who is kind of a found family that fell apart before the beginning of the book. Uh, but of course, I also love the trope of we got to get the gang together for one last job. So we have that going on. And so Arcadia also has this really interesting relationship, I think, with the Merricks um, and with the leader of the Merricks, Larkin, who is very angry at them for stealing a bunch of money and absconding with it before the book began. Um, but there's a chance to kind of make it up because they decide to try and steal something that will be worth mo enough money to help everybody out. So, yeah, um, you've just mentioned the Merricks. So in addition to being all of these beautiful, like, fantasy tropes and this, like, fun slow burn romance, this is also very much a heist story. Yeah, not, I can is, never write yeah. a book that's just one genre. It's always, like, three genres in one. <laughs> I mean, you got to have a bunch of things to play off of, and Everin has to have a skill set that he's going to learn. Um, and why not have that skill set be crime? So could you speak a little bit about crime and stealing things and the role that they play in the novel? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do love a good heist. Um, I, I did a heist in one of my other novels, uh, Seven Devils, which I wrote with my friend Elizabeth May as well. Um, and I love, like, say, Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo, which is, you know, the quintessential kind of heist uh, fantasy book. I also love The Lies of Locke Lamora, and I keep meaning to read The Black Tongue Thief because everyone's saying that's amazing as well. Um, so it also just really helped me kind of coalesce my plot of a magic MacGuffin that everybody wants for different reasons. So the heist is basically that uh, Arcady wants to steal this, like, gross preserved dragon's claw uh, because it would sell on the black market for a bunch of money. Uh, and Larkin of the Merricks is like, yeah, okay, if you pay me back what you stole and then some, I will help you steal this. Um, 
everyone's just like, well, I guess I can be helpful by helping you steal this thing uh, as an excuse to be around you and try and figure out how to make you love me so that I can kill you. And then we also have Soren, who's our other point of view character, who is like a priest assassin with good biceps and a little pet mini dragon named Jaculus, who I love. Um, And she is a very interesting character because she's very much a believer in the dragons. And um, her kind of master, Magnus, who's the head priest, is, you know, trying to stop people from selling these magical relics on the black market because they need it to kind of plug holes in the veil that uh, has an inconvenient... uh, side effect of spitting out wraith monsters which are bad uh so they all want this claw for very different reasons which of course will put them on a collision course to lead into the climax uh yeah so you just mentioned soren who is really i think i described her in my notes as our primary secondary point of view um and she is in many ways both sort of similar to Um, Our other protagonists, right, we have, I think, a lot of themes of isolation and of legacy and all of these things, but is playing a very different role in the novel as well. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about her and what she's doing kind of tonally and generally. Yeah, so I really loved Soren and I, I needed her to kind of provide more of a viewpoint as to like what is going on in the Citadel and what is this antagonistic person doing um as well because otherwise i hate it when you read a book and it's like the antagonist is just off somewhere doing evil stuff but we have no way of knowing what they're doing until the very end necessarily um and i was interested in soren's faith in particular because soren is very much a believer and everin at the start is also a believer um in fate whereas uh soren's a believer in dragons and also was raised within the Citadel and is so desperate to prove herself to Magnus that she will do anything, include silence her own voice. So she's taken a vow of silence and she can do like sign language, but she hasn't spoken a word aloud to anyone but Magnus in years. Um, and yeah, has been groomed to be a assassin and thinks that she's killing and you know, for glory, but is feeling strangely hollow after killing for some reason. Um, so I really enjoyed following her journey and, you know, kind of witnessing the cracks in the faith and what she's going to do over the trilogy, I think will be really exciting. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is book one of three. Uh, where are you sort of in the writing process and the creation process around? Is that a tricky question? I am. Well, I've told my editors, so they know that I'm very behind. Um, I'm currently about 40,000 words into book two, which is supposedly due in September. (laughs) So we'll see how that goes. But I think I've I found the thread of it now. So I'm speeding up. Um, I got slowed down because I was still working my old day job and it got incredibly, incredibly busy um, and then sort of imploded and I had to leave it. And so I got a bit burned out. So I'm kind of recovering from that. But now I'm on the other end and I can put all of my feelings about academia into book two. a good place to put feelings about academia for yeah, sure but i've got it pretty well arced and i know where the third one is going i know like the final kind of image of the whole trilogy as well which is quite important i think yeah. so we'll get there we'll get there 
Well, yeah, this um, overall is just such a fun book. You're playing with so many. I mean, it always feels weird to say that about fantasy novels because obviously there's like a lot of death and suffering and murder. But for all of those things, it's such a fun, joyful kind of love letter to the genre and playing in all of those spaces. Yeah, some people have said they found it kind of cozy despite the cannibalism. Which I quite enjoyed. Yeah, it's it's very cozy given all the murder and the cannibalism and, you know, the fear of plague and climate catastrophe. Yeah, aside from that. Yeah, it is and all the betrayal. Yeah, it's a romance. Um, you've got like, you know, the will they, won't they aspect. And, and yeah, I had a lot of fun writing it. It is a bit strange and experimental because I couldn't help myself there either. Like I've got my weird blend of narrative positions, which maybe is worth a brief, brief mention. Yeah, how did you sure. find how did you find reading my narrative position smorgasbord? Oh, I loved it and I wanted to talk about it, but I wasn't sure if it was too nerdy. So please, please oh, tell oh us no. more. I, I teach a whole I taught a whole module on narrative positions and clearly I got too excited. Um so I've set up Dragonfall as being like a collection in an archive, which you see on, on page one. You don't know exactly who the archivist is. You can you can make your guesses. Um but it's a collection of writings in the first person for two of them. Um, but also the archivist is able to scry into the past and, you know, pick out these other these other elements and these other strands. So Arcades bits are written in first person past tense, but Everin's bits is proving the most marmitey because it's first person direct address. So it's all written to Arcady, so you basically. Um, and I set that up really early, but I love it so much because it, one, helps avoid third-person pronouns for Arcady through most of the book, because um, Arcady welcomes any pronouns. But it's been really interesting because some reviews have used they, some have used he, some have used she. And I just love that because you're all reading the same book and you're all taking away a different reading of who you see Arcady in terms of gender. Um, and it also is quite like confronting, makes him sound like a predator, but it also gets strangely intimate as well because you're wondering why is he writing this? Is this a confession? Is it a love letter? Is it a bit of both? And then Soren's bits are in third person. And so are Cassia's, who we didn't talk about, but she's only got a couple of chapters and she's uh, Ebron's sister back in Beersalen. Um, So yeah, so it is weird. It's kind of first and second and third. Um, But I really enjoyed blending that together because also, you know, in terms of archives, it's so much is about like what you choose to preserve and what you don't choose to preserve. And you kind of, I've kind of set up the archivist a bit as a unreliable narrator a bit too. So Yes, I got really nerdy in terms of narrative position, um, perhaps too so, but I loved it. <laughs> well, and I think it's so fun, too, because it adds so much to the voice as well, right? There's a level of separation that we have in Cassia and like Soren's chapters where we have kind of that distance of third person compared to the first person and sort of like trending second person of Everin's. And I just I'm a huge fan of second person, which I know is like a little bit controversial but anytime I love it there, I freaking love it that envelope. Yeah, yeah for sure the I more think it can, can add a lot in terms of like rhythm and tone and yeah yeah and it's yeah. how we tell stories like we'll say oh you'll never believe what happened to me the other day right so we do use first person direct address all the time and letters and stuff so I don't understand why we don't do it more in books I think we should yeah. well Long thank you for person. doing the good work for, yeah, absolutely yeah. preserve the second person for yeah. sure me and uh, N.K. Jemison and yeah. uh, Tamsin Muir. <laughs> Although, yeah. The, yeah. 
it is like increasingly it's fun to watch it i feel like it would have been much harder to do that even like 10 years ago than it is now and it is still proving a little bit marmite some people either really really love it or really really hate it which is why i'm always like in interviews now i'm like i'm gonna flag that i do this just so that you know going in that it's it's a bit it's a bit experimental in terms of it but just roll with it i promise i had a point (laughs) it happens pretty early too right because we start with really early yeah yeah immediate so people are warned. They know coming yeah, they in. Are. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, this book really is so much fun. Oh, thank you. And I really enjoyed getting to talk with you about it. Um, yeah. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share the good word of dragons. Yeah. I mean, it's an important word to spread, really. Indeed. Yes. It's, <laughs> we all need to be thinking and talking more about dragons basically all the time. Yep. Long live dragons. Absolutely. So I have been speaking with L.R. Lamb about their novel Dragonfall, which is now out from DAW. And I have been your host, A.E. Lanier. Thank you so much for listening. And please consider feeding the various algorithms by subscribing, leaving a review, telling a friend about us, all that good stuff. I will speak to you soon. And for now, happy reading.